Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inside the Lab, where we talk about anything and everything happening in today's laboratories. My name is Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at the American Society for Clinical Pathology, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Joe Sterntroppen. I'm at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I'm the Director of Pathology Informatics and Associate Attending. I'll be guest hosting uh, today's podcast about digital pathology. We've got some great guests lined up, and I'll let them introduce themselves. My name is Orly Arden. I'm at MSKCC, Memorial Sloan Kettering. I'm the scientific manager for pathology digital diagnostics. Hello, this is uh, Matthew Hanna. I'm also at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and the director for digital pathology informatics. Hi, and I'm Joel Leonards. I'm at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm the medical director for the Center for Integrated Diagnostics and the associate chief for pathology. Well, thank you all so much for joining us and really excited to hear from all of you. But before we do that, uh, I got to do a little housekeeping to get that out of the way. So CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is an accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA category one credit. Physicians should only claim credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. So let's get right into these questions. So digital pathology can range from a static image to a real-time live broadcast image. What do you think most current pathologists and laboratory professionals think of when you use the phrase, we should be doing digital pathology? Matt? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, I think there's such a wide breadth of utility in, in digital pathology I think most people, when they say we should be doing digital pathology, probably refer to primary diagnosis using uh, high throughput whole slide scanners to digitize their glass slides out of the laboratory and make available from a primary diagnosis standpoint. In terms of static images, there's obviously a, a tremendous use case for other countries who may not have the resources that are available for these larger footprint, high throughput whole slide scanners. And so whether they're taking static images from a microscope, from a camera mounted onto a microscope and using that, that is one form of digital pathology. Uh, Digital pathology could also integrate gross images, which are a part of static images. But I do think uh, most pathologists that are referring to digital pathology are looking at either archiving their glass slides as whole slide images and making them available in the laboratory information system, or really doing prospective scanning out of the laboratory and using them for primary diagnosis. And do you think that's how the lay press, the lay people also think about that term when they hear digital pathology, or do they think about robots diagnosing their cancer? My understanding is that they were talking about the digitization standpoint. I think the machine learning part of it and, the, and artificial intelligence is definitely a, you know, a hot topic. But I think some things maybe that they're not referring to are maybe these hybrid scanning uh, devices or instruments where they're actually microscopes in a box and the pathologist can remotely control those devices, there needs to be an operator who's actually putting the glass slides or loading the glass slides on the device, but the pathologist can remotely control and navigate those slides just like a real microscope. They could even focus in real time. Some instruments even allow them to change brightness. So, you know, there's definitely a, a spectrum of digital pathology devices and instruments that can be used for both primary diagnosis, consultation, and other use cases. I would add that I think that this idea of digital pathology, even within departments and institutions, it's going to really differ among the different individuals. And you will have this wide variety of definitions of what is digital pathology. And there is a lot of generational differences, I think, and also just the familiarity of how much people were exposed to this use of digital pathology. So you'll find it in in the same departments, just talking to different individuals. Joe, anything to add? I love digital pathology, all and everything about it. <laughs> I hope so with your job title. <laughs> I can add just uh, one more point to add is really looking at it from the education and research standpoint. I think there's obviously a focus on clinical utility of digital pathology, but in reality, there's a tremendous uh, use case for educating trainees using digital pathology 
having trainees use digital pathology in their training programs because they will be using them in their future careers. And then, of course, there's a research arm, whether it's the computational pathology initiatives of, a, of an organization or just using digital pathology images from a collaboration standpoint. There's, there's tremendous use cases from, from those perspectives as well. Yeah, I can second that. I mean, one element of, of digital pathology is that it is truly a subspecialty, um, but not in a traditional sense, like an organ system or a specific task. It is, however, definitely belonging to and within pathology. But I think one interesting aspect that we should probably discuss is that there is a lot of interest, not only from within pathology, but as with many other subspecialties coming from the outside. And I think what's really new and so exciting is that that is not restricted to, let's say, our clinical colleagues in, let's say, gastrointestinal or, let's say, pulmonology, but that right now we have a lot of interest from electronic medical record vendors all the way to, you know, industries, to advanced analytics, to artificial intelligence, and a lot of vendors in the realm of from storage all the way to portrayal of data in a more integrated sense. So I think that is definitely new and at least I believe that hasn't happened to pathology before. So I think that that makes it really exciting, a challenge, but also something very, very fascinating to move forward. I guess before I actually ask my next question, I, I guess I'll just say that I think all of us can agree that we've made a lot of progress from the days of us sharing static images where people might be taking a snapshot with their camera or, or using their iPhones to kind of share things. And uh, I think for some practices or many practices, they're still doing that. I can see that also being internationally where they might not have access to these technologies. But you know, that said, we've come a long way. So for the next question, the technology to produce a whole site image of a slide that can be stored or transmitted has been around for over a decade, but the first FDA approval wasn't until 2017. What are some of the barriers or challenges for the technology itself with regards to mainstream use and how are they resolving? Maybe I'll start with Joe Leonard. Thank you, thank you. The FDA approval was, was certainly a very interesting development. You know, as one of the principal investigators, it was certainly enough work. And the so-called FDA approval was actually an instrument precision study. So interestingly, it was a combination of demonstrating concordance with manual reads, but all the way down to really intricate image details at the higher and the lower power across all kinds of diseases and cellular structures. So I think in a way, some of what these whole slide imagers produce is, I think, in the meantime, really reliable and FDA authorized, at least in part, boxes that can create data that we know and love from our microscopes in a digital way. So I think that part of the technology has been accomplished. Now, in a way, one would regard that as, well, that's a sound barrier, so we passed that, so what's the big problem now? And I think what has become clear since that first approval is, it wasn't just that that needed to be removed and then all the rest fell into place, but there are many other challenges that have to be overcome and solved that would make the true function and the versatility of a microscope truly available on a monitor. You know, metadata management, all the intricacies of, you know, what do we need to really review at what power? And, you know, some of the, let's say, intricacies of a daily workflow that you know, everyone knows, well, the scanner could sit at the end of the histolab and scan every slide, but that comes with a gigantic operational and logistic overhead of making sure that the slides are focused. If they're not in focus, then the pathologist may otherwise be you know, slowed down, et cetera. So I would say the, the quick answer to you know, what, what is sort of the, the big issue is just like any other innovative technology that hits our practice, it's not just the technology. The technology is almost like a thing that if that wouldn't work, no one would even look at it. But here, the problem is that it is so intricately associated, just like one puzzle piece in this gigantic pathology, multidimensional, multimodular workflow that, you know, you need time, you need resources, you have to have a budget, you have to have leadership support, has to be secured, has to basically tick off all the boxes on our virtual synoptic Right to say, hey, can we use this truly? There's an unclear financial pathway, and who will actually adopt it depends more on you know what can you maneuver locally to actually get into sort of a 
a sense of, hey, we can get this off the ground. And it's certainly a big mountain to climb if you want to go for the full integration right away. I haven't heard of anyone being able to do that. So I think everyone on the call here has tried and you have accomplished several things. So Joe, can I hand the question over to maybe Matthew? Before I get to that, I also want to say that there's often a misconception that FDA clear devices are required for clinical purposes. And so the FDA in their wisdom essentially clears or proves or qualifies certain instruments or devices or software for a specific intended use and for what that vendor specifically can market that product for. The FDA does not regulate healthcare or medical practice. And so that's why we have accreditation bodies uh, essentially that come in and inspect laboratories and allow them to offer testing. Uh, And so just to clarify that, Every institution may have their own risk profile of whether they will allow non-FDA cleared devices to be used as, as, as long as they've been properly validated, which is typically the, you know, been the case for, for many institutions, as long as there's proper validation and documentation that the technologies were appropriate and validated for their specific intended u- or clinical intended use, then they, they are permitted for clinical testing for on patient uh, specimens. But I will also mention, I think there's been a lot of challenges in terms of how the FDA uh, cleared certain devices as an entire end-to-end package where it, it did not allow for flexibility or does not allow for flexibility in terms of plugging and playing of different devices and instruments. And there's obviously reasons for that. But as a challenge for maybe the question can answer, you know, why isn't there extraordinary widespread adoption and use across the entire globe? or at least within the U.S. from an FDA perspective, it may be due to the the lack of interoperability between some of these systems. And it somewhat stems from the early days in radiology where the vendors were siloed into their own unique proprietary systems. But with enabling of interoperability, uh, whether that's through a a DICOM communications protocol or or some other open uh, interoperability standard, then that really helped allow the community to start adopting the technology at a much at a much deeper pace. I would add that the quality of the instrumentation that was available until um, quite recently was just not there. So institutions were just afraid to make this investment and end up having to deal with Instruments that were just not ready for clinical use, um, too slow, quality of the image was not there, and there was just not enough support from the vendors to, to integrate the scanner use into the infrastructure of the institutions. Let me ask a follow-up, and this uh, might be a potentially uh, provocative question, but um, Matt, you had mentioned about uh, intended use, and you know, back from the 2017, a lot of it's on surgical pathology. I wanted to get everybody's opinion about how far we can extend the use to like cytology and heme. Do you think we're going to get to that point at some point in time in the near future? Well, as you mentioned, none of the existing, or I should say, the the two two of the FDA cleared devices have not been, or there, there is no claims related to cytology uh, specifically, and so there are some very promising technologies on the horizon that do allow for very high resolution digitization of, of glass slides, as well as efficient scanning. Uh, especially, you know, with extended focal imaging, being able to capture many different planes of, of focus and, and selecting the best one to stitch across the entire slide. And so I guess in the hope is that the future will hold some promise for these technologies where as they go through their own clinical trials, as well as other tasks that are needed for clearance, that the FDA will clear them and support them for their own intended use, including cytology, hematopathology, and other and other areas of pathology that have been a challenge thus far. I'm going to follow up with maybe another proactive question, and um, you, you had mentioned about you know you know different uh, barriers, but I, you know I think a lot of people are thinking about this. You know, with AI, obviously you can't have AI unless you digitize. So do you think AI might actually be a driver in terms of adoption for digital technologies? My answer is yes. And the reason is that I think it's pretty obvious that early on in the 
early days of digital pathology, which are barely ending, uh, the effort was really just geared toward histopathology. And there was development of AI tools for very, I want to say, and I think you're all aware, there are just a limited number of uh, histopathology users. And um, I think that if you start thinking about the additional uses, as um, Matthew just mentioned, uh, if you look at cellular microscopy, cytology, hematopathology, microbiology, you know, we're not even looking at infectious disease at a large scale. There is lots of potential for digital pathology. Uh, We're going to get into areas, you know, regional hospitals. We're going to see places that just will not have the capacity because of shortage of staff to offer timely testing, you know, maintaining turnaround time with their shortage of staff and expertise. They will need to send out specimens. Some of these are high, high volume tests. And at some point, if there will be tools available, there will be a decision that it will just make more sense if you want to maintain patient care to, to be able to scan specimens on site and be able to use AI tools. And I think the days are, we're getting there. There are very currently few uses for that. For a while, it just made sense to, to go and look at the histology uh, uses, mostly because most of the other tests, the cellular microscopy tests are just much, you know, they are low cost tests and nobody thought that it would make sense to develop tools for that. But if you do the math and look at the volume of those tests, you will realize that there is a large market out there and it just makes sense to take those low cost tests and add some innovation. And unfortunately, most most institutions, most laboratories don't have the expertise to do that, and we rely on external collaborators who can do that. So we already see we're already seeing those efforts, we're already seeing commercial products coming to the market. And the next step would be for additional laboratories to to invest in infrastructure for scanning so that they will be able to adopt those AI tools. So let's actually dig into that a little bit. I think that that's what you're saying. I absolutely 100% agree. I agree with you. There are obvious market niches that are not being taken advantage of right now, but the cost of equipment to produce a whole slide image can range from less than $100 with a smartphone. You know, you can do that to more than $200,000 for a high throughput scanner, which by the way, requires a huge service contract every year. So there's a whole, whole range. And there are trade-offs as you move up and down this cost scale, which I think you all are probably familiar with. So what are the most important factors for a pathology lab or even an individual pathologist or even a laboratory professional should they consider before committing to a system for digital pathology? Well, there are lots of uh, factors to consider, but it really depends on the laboratory, on the use case, you know, the capacity, the, what quality of image do you need? Do you need Z-stacking? Do you need high magnification? Do you need uh, robotic solutions? You can have very simple equipment for a small pathologist office versus a very high throughput fast scanner that is needed for a laboratory like ours. So it, it really depends and you have to do some homework before that. You have to look at factors that are related to the pre-analytic work. How much time does it take to to prepare a slide, to put it on a rack? Can you remove a rack from a stainer and put it in the scanner? Do you really need that? For some use cases, you don't need that. How much staffing do you need? We, We don't talk about the laboratory aspects of how much staffing do we need. And Laboratory personnel is hard to come by. It's very hard to recruit people and maintain them, people many years of expertise. So it's all questions that we have to think about. How long does it take to to get to the LIS? And then also, can we work with a vendor to scale the volume if needed? Can we trade in an instrument if needed? Can we expect support for clinical use that will be fast. Lots of factors to consider, lots of questions for vendors, but it's really a budget, you know, understanding what's the minimal capacity of a scanner that you need in order to allow your operations. And it will be different for every lab, for every use case. The short answer, I don't think there is just one factor. You really have to think of the entire 
uh, scope of what you want to accomplish and how much staffing you are going to need in order to, to get there. Joe or Matthew, comments about selecting instruments? Yeah, I'll say I completely agree with what Orly mentioned. I, I think each lab has their own very specific blueprint for what their use cases are that they need to use it for. Again, whether it's for clinical, uh, prospective, archiving of, of glass slides, purely education, purely research, all of the above. It really truly depends on what use cases digital pathology will be used for from that laboratory. Like we mentioned, uh, tissue pathology, surgical pathology versus cellular pathology, and also the makeup of the institution. It could be an organization that just has one main location, or it could be a distributed health network that has many satellite locations, and maybe they need remote monitoring or more telepathology type of solutions there, or real-time streaming of, of cameras. I mean, in any sense, uh, you don't necessarily need, like you mentioned, you can just have a smartphone or, or, or just a camera mounted on a microscope and you can stream uh, the images from somebody, a pathologist or even a, a trainee at a microscope that's operating the slide and streaming it to a remote site. So I think it, it really does depend on what the use cases are of that institution. And there's always the, the, the staffing, the scanning, um, and of course, the, the leadership support from being able to initialize the entire operation and digital pathology journey as a whole. Maybe I can add some, some regulatory science terminology to this, because I think that is that may be very helpful for people to conceptualize what their specific use case may be. So let's just say you have a rapid lung cancer program where you have a cytotechnologist read, let's say, on-site, you know, aspiration cytologies. And as you said, Orly, you know, you may need stacking or Z-stacking or some sort of 3D to, to look at, you know, something in the cytology range. So the, the intended use would be what you want to do, meaning I want to diagnose, let's say, lung cancer from a cytospecimen. The indication for use would be who and why the person is doing it. So it could be, you know, a cytotechnologist scanning a slide with the intent to do a rapid FNA read or so. And the instruction for use would be how the person is operating the scanner. So these three things, meaning the intended use, what you're doing, the indication for use, who and why you're doing it, and the instruction for use, meaning how you do it, all come together in what pathologists consider, well, that's our use case. And it is very intricate to understand as pathologists, we just consider that a use case and we switch from use case to use case by changing people, right? To just say, oh, of course, a cytopathologist could read that, but that's a different who. That means it changed the indication of use. So you may need different competencies, different credentials. At the same time, of course, if you have a lymphoma on your slide, that's fine if you're a pathologist or a cytotech who can identify it, but that would change the in intended use. So all these intricacies come together. And as a, let's call it like general pathologist, you know all these things and you can leverage your background to just adopt. But from a regulatory perspective, that's completely different. So when you're asking a vendor, what is this scanner best for? then you will probably encounter for the first time, well, why do you want to use it? So this is kind of like, I think the, you know, context that we need to keep in mind when, when making those decisions. But I think I agree with what, what Oli and Matthew said before as well. Well, usually the vendors uh, also tend to overpromise. They will tell you that this scanner is good for everything, right? But we know it's not the case. And you talk to colleagues and you learn from them, but um, in our experience, there is just not one scanner that can do everything. And I think that's not going to change in the near future. It would be great if it would be possible. But right now, we have multiple scanners for multiple vendors to do that. And you're right. It's a different use cases. This has been a great discussion. And actually, um, Joe, Orly, keep that thought because this kind of leads into my question. So how can digital pathology benefit laboratory professionals outside of surgical pathology in areas like microbiology, hematology, and cytology. Is this something that uh, decentralized rural settings should seriously consider? Let, let's start with Matt. In short, yes, it's definitely something that I think every pathology laboratory should be considering. I think, you know, it's really a question of when these technologies will become available for 
all of these different other subspecialty areas. And uh, there's definitely be a, been a large a volume of and competition with in regards to surgical pathology or tissue pathology or any formal and fixed paraffin embedded tissues. Uh, I think we're starting to see a growing body of work in relation to microbiology, uh, hematology in terms of peripheral blood smears, cytology, of course, and some of these other either more challenging or less utilized specialties in the past are now really starting to come to fruition with betterment of technology, whether it's the optics and the resolution of scanning, as well as the speed of which these glass slides can be scanned. And there's there's already been a, a tremendous amount of literature, actually, in terms of formalin, again, mainly with formalin fixed paraffin embedded tissues for microbiology. And in all senses, you know, if you're looking at gram stains or or other type of special stains looking at microorganisms, those are really no different than the regular H&E slides that we can identify any microorganism on. And, and so that's already, there's already been an established use case for that. Uh, but those are really still limited to the, the high throughput um, tissue, quote unquote, tissue pathology type of scanners. But there are technologies that are definitely coming about that are looking at other areas of pathology, such as peripheral blood smears or cytology or other types of pathologies that typically would have needed a higher resolution image in order to review that tissue or review those cells. And I think laboratories, uh, big and small, should really be looking at these technologies and seeing how they could be implemented in their practice. Definitely. I, I agree uh, with everything Matthew says, because you know, I'm a microbiologist. And if anything, if we learned anything this last year, 2020, we have to respect the microbes, right? And it's been ignored for many years. And, and a lot of what's been What's still taking place in infectious disease lab in other areas has not changed much. There is really not much automation. And what a lot of this workforce is going through is the same trend, as I mentioned. The experienced, knowledgeable workforce is leaving. We don't have young people coming to the field. So we do need to capture this expertise in a way, develop AI tools, be able to offer that to other regions uh, which may not have the expertise, you know, international, you know, some global uh, labs, uh, regional labs, not everyone can enjoy the same level of expertise that we're experiencing here in large academic centers. So I, I do think that there is lots of movement. I remember in 2017, I was looking for a scanner for parasitology testing, and I was talking to colleagues at DPA, to vendors, and you know they kind of scratched their heads. They didn't know why I was interested in that. And when you talk to them about the pain point and the cost associated with sitting there all day screening many slides that are all negative, which you know that those eyeballs are not meant to do. You know, people are sitting and they can really enjoy that, but there are just no technological solution because nobody thought that there may be an ROI that's associated with that. So I think that now we are starting to see more and more of that, as Matthew mentioned, and I think in the next few years, we're going to see more examples of tools that are making it to the microbiology, cytology, hematopathology labs. Well, I don't know if I, I don't know if this is allowed, but but Joe, how about I, I turn this over back to you? I mean, you guys have implemented the telecytology program, right? That is outside of surgical pathology. How about you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's a definite use case, right? <laughs> and I thought I was supposed to be the one that's asking questions here. So yeah, actually, I think it, you know a lot of uh, the conversation has been alluding to this. And for maybe those that may not be familiar, we do have a very large um, telecytology operation at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. And it actually has a long story, which I won't go into, but it was born out of accident. You can imagine higher up administrators not thinking about pathology. And so we had to do this, make do with this. And fortunately, long story short, it was so successful, it ended up being kind of the main model for all of our um, sites. So what happened in 2013 is that we started springing up satellite sites. Now, I think everybody's familiar with this model where you start buying up hospitals, your network is, and then you promise all these services. Well, one of the services ended up being rapid on-site 
or cytologic evaluation or ROSE for short for those cytologists in the audience. And the problem was that you need people there. Technically, historically, you needed people. And we were not going to have that financially, operationally, space-wise. So we had to sort of jerry-rig up uh, an operation of doing telecytology where, you know, depending on the space and other constraints, we might have somebody on site like a, a, a cytotechnologist, and sometimes we won't. So we actually did redid the workflow. Like for instance, if we wouldn't have a cytotechnologist on, up front, we put the robotic microscope up there and we trained, if you can believe it, we actually trained the clinical team to actually do work the, the microscope. And for the most part, you know, I forgot how many sites we have now. I, it's 10, keeps growing by basically all of our rapid on-site cytologic evaluations, all roses on all these sites are done through telecytology. And basically either a cytotechnologist or a cytopathologist centrally reviews them and gives a thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, so it's a double read. So we enhance the quality. We're also able to bill for it. So it makes the financial people very happy as well. But it's been a very successful implementation in terms of just using telecytology streaming technologies, being able to deliver this type of service. And we can, you know, talk about the, why we actually chose streaming versus WSI. That's a whole no uh, kettle of fish. But for the most part, it's been very successful. And uh, <laughs> I appreciate you, Joe, uh, you asking that question because it's a very successful thing that can also translate to maybe rural settings. Let's say if you don't have a cytopathologist on site, you can technically build a workflow so you can centralize it so that an expert is somewhere available. Yeah. You know, so these are things that are uh, can be looked into uh, models wise. And, and that obviously has huge implications in the global health setting, which you have you have people on staff with you that are doing that as well. So um, it's very exciting to see the rest of the world, meaning those people outside of us who know what cytology is, embracing cytology as a as a tool that can actually save lives quite dramatically if we add a little innovation to it. So I don't want to, every podcast we've done since we started inside the lab has mentioned COVID, unfortunately. So here's our obligatory COVID question. But with the recent pandemic, there were emergency use authorizations for pathologists to be able to sign out remotely using digital pathology tools. What are some of the pros and cons of this happening within an EUA? And I'll ask Joe to answer that first. Maybe just to, to briefly consider so emergency youth authorization versus sort of exemptions from some of the federal codes i think we have to distinguish a little but i think it's it's probably you know everyone knows that you know remote work was kind of allowed suddenly which was one of the legal hurdles that was at least hovering around before covid and then suddenly you know a lot of people said hey we should really make use of remote work because we can decrease the exposure to pathologists going into the hospital. And I think that was really meaningful. And a lot of people have contributed. Initially, there was a thought we could get this done through an 1135 waiver. But then, you know, ASCP, CAP, you know, a lot of other groups came together and helped kind of convince CLIA to lift a couple of the regulations surrounding that. So to be specific, and I think it's probably good for, for, for people to know what actually happened wasn't that people said, oh, you can just do remote work. What was lifted was a specific thing in the federal code, which is the so-called eligibility for a multi-site laboratory and a specific section within that that would allow people to basically validate a multiple site from the main site and act under that common clear license. And to be to be very specific, the actual you know, the, the CLIA group, the certification group, addressed the state survey agency directors to tell them not to ding people if they don't have that multi-site independent, let's call it CLIA license plus validation ready, but it could be done by a parent organization, let's say the main hospital, just like what Joe just said with telecytology. So in fact, not a lot has changed other than you can't be formally currently quoted for that. There are probably six other things that I won't go into, but I think the, the key element that that has demonstrated is that there is a way to enable this by rather small, I would call it um, confirmatory or survey exceptions, rather than we don't need to completely change CLIA or come up with a completely new framework. It can be adopted to enable this for a specific set and or you know, in this case, remote work. So I think that is one of the, you know, I would say probably, you know, as, as I said, about six or seven other great use cases that we learned during COVID 
And in specific for digital pathology, I think it has kind of pushed the envelope a little bit to show people, hey, look, if you can overcome some of your local hurdles, this is not a big hurdle to overcome. And I know, you know, some people on the call have done that anyway, but others have seen, hey, we can probably do this as well. So it created kind of an incentive to, to not use legal exemptions or so as a, you know, additional reason not to do it. But so overall, I think that may not be a big benefit of the COVID pandemic, but at least for digital pathology, it was a, a small little bonus that, you know, I witnessed as, as positive. Did, did you guys agree, Oli, Matthew? I would add that it definitely brought digital pathology um, visibility, especially for leadership, uh, institu institutional leadership that was looking uh, at ways to continue operations. And I think it's, it's I don't want to say it's a great thing that happened, but um, there were some positive things that emerged from that. And one of them is is more visibility in the institution to what digital pathology can offer continued operations yeah i think i think the public health emergency really did enable a lot of, or, or catalyze some of the enforcement discretions that a lot of the other non-pathology medical domains uh, have typically been granted during those times in respect to telemedicine as a whole where uh some of the more patient-facing physicians then are an, an essentially enabled to be able to work across state lines without being penalized and not necessarily need uh, cross-state licensure. And so between CMS and the FDA and their enforcement discretions, they ultimately did allow for pathologists to work remotely as well as to, to decrease exposure for those pathologists and not necessarily needing for travel, but then obviously also provide continuous patient care for patients who are still seeking care during during the times during the public health emergency and even still until today. So I think there were a lot of opportunities for digital pathology to come to light during these times and for the, the medical community to benefit from them. Just to follow up on that, if it hadn't happened, if the pandemic hadn't happened, what, what would be your prediction for how long it would have taken to get to the state where we are now? I think the public health emergency probably shaved off at least a, a few years from the adoption cycle of digital pathology, because I think those institutions or organizations that had a pre-COVID digital pathology infrastructure in any capacity really were able to hit the ground running because they have already they had already pre-invested in this. But then it really showed for those who had no investment in digital pathology resources whatsoever, that this was, it's not just a commodity at this, at this instance, it's really a necessity, not just for times of public health emergencies or, or civil unrest, but for the, for the, for the future of the medical field and for pathology as a whole. I just say, as Churchill said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. I'm sure somebody else said it, but uh, he gets credit for that one. <laughs> Let's say, on following on that, um, some of us have taken a huge leap forward by employing these digital tools during the pandemic, and some may be reluctant to go back. We have learned new efficiencies and have had a taste of a different kind of work-life balance. What are the biggest challenges, you know, either personal, policy, regulatory, et cetera, that are facing the pathology and laboratory committee in this regard as the pandemic rolls back to normalcy? So maybe I'll start with Orly on this one. Okay, that's a great question. And I, I do want to mention that besides, just like Matthew said, besides the public health emergency on COVID-19 was a long-term issue. But, you know, living in New York City, you have emergencies all the time, whether it's weather or uh, protests. There are times that the city just gets locked down. So if it's a two or three day issue, then it may be, you know, you may be able to to compensate for that. But those emergencies are not new. They're going to continue to be there. It depends on your geographical location. It can be a hurricane, it can be a tornado, depending on where you are. The bottom line is that we have to remember that digital pathology doesn't mean that everyone who's involved in the operations is going to be able to sit and work remotely on some secluded island. It will work for some of the pathologists, but when you look at the 
entire workflow of digital pathology. What does it take to get a specimen, to get a slide, to digitize it? You have lots of people, lots of departments who are involved with that. So all the pre-analytic uh, work has to be done on site. And uh, we did a study of what happened in our operations during the pandemic. And when you look at the staff, you see that, well, most of them don't have cars. Most of them take public transportation, for example. And when there is no public transportation in the city because of the lockdown, we have to think of how do we get those people to come to work, to feel safe, to be able to continue operations, but without compromising their well-being. So I think this is a great period in time in which institutions who have not been able to prepare for emergencies have to start looking at all those steps, all the things we do, the entire spectrum of operations, and start putting together just plans for continued operations. And that obviously includes the pathology laboratories. And it's a great opportunity, as I mentioned, to, to start thinking about digital pathology infrastructure if an institution is not there yet. It's, it's just time. But at the same time as uh, institutions that started adopting digital tools, let's start using this opportunity to collect the data, prove that our digital pathology operations are adding some value to the institutions, to the industry, provide QA data, you know, share QA data with other institutions, uh, regulatory agencies, just to, to allow to move the entire industry, the entire adoption of digital pathology across multiple institutions. Joe, did you have a comment? Yeah, I, I just wanted to maybe add an opinion that I, and uh, maybe I'll speak for myself on this one, but I, I just don't, COVID allowed us to see a lot of things. A lot of opportunities opened up a lot of proofs of concept that arguments that were made in the past, we were able to show it that we could do this effectively. Examples would be with uh, one of the studies that we did at, here at Memorial with Matt being the first author was that people used to think monitors were really, really crucial. You needed barcodes, $10,000. I don't know how much they cost now. Uh, monitors, you really don't. We were able to prove things with, you know, that pathologists are pretty amazing. We can make diagnoses. You know, I'm assuming as long as you don't do it on an iWatch, something reasonable, you can actually make diagnoses. So it really enabled the flexibility of things. And I think the enabling of flexibility really alleviated a lot of the fear in terms of the regulators about things. They were really locked down, like, oh my gosh, if it's not top, we're not sure we're going to prove it. And I have to say that door has been open. So it's almost ridiculous to me that we go back on a lot of these things. So I think the door has been open. I don't think we're going to take a step back. Exactly how we're going to do it, I'm not exactly sure. But I don't necessarily see us going back to the pre-COVID days. Yeah, I, I think that the way that I would look at this as a pathologist who's a member of ASCP, but also as someone who works at ASCP, is that, you know, we're a patient-centered organization, quality is one of our pillars, and we would say anything, anything that you did to deliver care during the pandemic that did not compromise quality should be continued if it's more efficient and more effective. But if it's compromising quality, it's got to go. You've got to do the highest quality thing you need to do for your patients. But I think it's exactly what you just said, Joe, the study you're talking about with Matt, you proved that that that's not a quality issue. The monitor doesn't make me, but doesn't make that much of a difference. And I think that's where we have to take these lessons learned to move forward because, you know, there are definitely things we did that we should never have done. You know, there's no reason a laboratory should have eight different instruments running the same test, right? And so we can't do that again. We got to figure out a better solution than that. But certainly digital pathology was not a bad thing. It was a wonderful thing. And, and how to continue doing it with that same quality is, is really all that matters as long as the patients are being cared for. I can imagine the uh, applause from the audience on this one. I think almost everybody in the entire pathology community agrees <laughs> on this one. Preaching to the choir. But I, I do want to mention one thing, which uh, one of the downfalls maybe is that during the pandemic, hospital systems did experience a downturn in their revenue generation. So in a way, we are coming up with this wonderful technology, great way to provide uh, patient care, but we are also asking for more resources from our leaders. And I think this is, going back to my point, we have to use this time to collect data and to show that there is some return on investment for our institutions. And just to 
use this success to move forward and not just stagnate again because there is a fear of investing with this unknown technology that may not provide any value to the hospital. So we did our obligatory COVID discussion. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and talk about something that came up earlier, but I want to delve into a little bit more. So, so as Orly mentioned, there, the advent of commercially available artificial intelligence platforms is upon us. Uh, these are going to be involved in pathology workflow, and it's going to require digital pathology as an initial step um, for the end user. So how do you feel about the, the uptake of this digital pathology being affected? Um, and specifically, what do you think about this double capital sort of double cost barrier for this technology and how that regards equity for patients. You know, we if you if you're going to do AI and you have to have digital pathology, now you're kind of doubling down on what you're going to invest in capital. But is the benefit of patients there at this point from these commercially available products? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Honestly, I think you know there's there's a lot of claims that digital pathology alone is not going to provide as much value as some of the other downstream technologies that may be able to use the assets that have been generated from digital pathology. And I, I don't think digital pathology from in, in, in the sense that we're just replicating the microscope in a digital format is really going to cut it in isolation. I think the goal is, yes, you need to replace the microscope, but then you need to also provide additional tools on top of that solution in order to create prioritizations for pathologists, create increases in accuracy and so on and so forth. And all of these other novel digital biomarker discussions that have been going on. I think there's there's a lot of opportunity from the machine learning standpoint. We don't want to be stuck in the same siloed versions of these where we're only able to use maybe machine learning models that have been created from one specific vendor. We need to really learn from all of the efforts that happen in industry from digital pathology from the get-go and start to really create a more interoperability between these different models because there's an infinite number of different things a pathologist does on any given day. And these machine learning models really tackle specific, you know, one or a couple intended use cases. So the pathologist, of course, is still going to be needed and, and is not going to be replaced by these technologies but we do need a level of interoperability between the machine learning models themselves. And again, not just to replicate the microscope in a digital form, but to then be able to provide a lot of these tools to make the pathologist uh, more accurate or more you know, assistive from an accuracy, efficiency, or, or novel digital biomarker standpoint. I think a lot of the literature that's actually shown purely from a diagnostic review time that just replicating the microscope and, and, and having pathologists navigate a digital whole slide image actually makes the pathologists less efficient than they are actually reviewing glass slides on a microscope. And so there's probably a learning curve there with any type of technology adoption. And we're still, for the most part, using these conventional computer mice to navigate these whole slide images, which, you know, this is a whole separate input device conversation. But at the end of the day, just replicating the microscope in a digital format, at least initially, looks like it's making pathologists less efficient. But I think those efficiencies and, and very likely more will be gained, as well as being able to provide better patient care across community and rural and, and, and academic settings from a lot of these other uh, detection, classification, or digital biomarker type of machine learning models are, are on the horizon. So, so in other words, it's not about the smartphone, it's about the apps. Exactly. I would just add, you asked about the commercial AI platforms, and I do think that this is, you know, first of all, I don't think it can be stopped. I think we are there now, and I think it's necessary, it's essential for, to move forward. But the one thing I would mention is that most uh, laboratories, most pathology departments, most academic institutions don't have the capacity to develop AI tools for all their needs. And we really rely on those commercial tools in order to be able to integrate them into operations. So I think that there will be this need to continue to collaborate to collaborate within the industry with multiple factors, multiple multiple entities. But it will eventually 
just drive the use of digital pathology because once one institution sees the benefit of those AI tools, there will be more adoption in satellite institutions and others. So again, the more knowledge we gain from the use of those, it will just continue to spread. So I don't think it can be stopped at this point. Yeah, and and there's, you know, we could spend the next two hours and I could give you an, an interesting, mostly soliloquy about the number of pathologists that there are in the U.S. and the changing workforce, the lack of laboratory professionals, and the you know increases and decreases that are happening with workflow for things like the the age of colonoscopy being lowered down to forty five, yet Cologuard is you know being thrown around as a way to screen stool, et cetera, et cetera. So that whole concept to me says one thing: we need AI in order to get our work done in the next decade, and then I think that. It doesn't matter where it comes from, homebrew, commercial, it doesn't matter. We're going to have to have it because the volumes are increasing and the number of pathologists is not. And so I think that, that you know, that's the take home point. I want to make, people, make sure that people understand about AI. Dan, you mentioned uh, something that resonated with me about the app. And I keep thinking about the app store. And you can imagine if you have your favorite app and let's say you change your phone to a different platform and that app's no longer available, can only imagine from the consumer aspect of how upset people get on these things now and and matt had mentioned about interoperability and stuff and i think we want to live in a world where we get our app no matter what ecosystem you live on and so interoperability and standardization end up being very very key and i just wanted to throw out another provocative question for our panel how do we incentivize that you mentioned about vendor engagement are there other things that people can think of to incentivize so that you get your favorite app under any vendor and it doesn't matter well, the one thing I'll say is I think the and the pathology community has been really great in trying to voice this as a concern. I mean, at the end of the day, industry needs to adopt these levels of uh, or these standards to enable interoperability. But I do think the whether it's the accreditation bodies or the pathology community as a whole need to really raise their voices and either provide a, a mechanism for this interoperability, say, for instance, like the DICOM working groups or other standard organizations, but also from the, the professional societies and organizations. They've done an incredible job organizing certain connectathons and other um, types of events so that the vendors and community can come together and really put people on the ground to actually do the work and, and try to connect these because otherwise it's not going to happen on its own. Just to follow up on what Matt just said. So I think it may be time to realize that pathologists and the direct group of pathology or pathologist associated job groups can't handle this by themselves. There are so many additional aspects that come to us when you say interoperability and the function of that, it just means, you know, usability and a graphic user interface, maybe that works smoothly. But what stands behind that is not just someone who can code. It's an entire army of people with a diverse skill set that all has to work and come together to, to in, a, in a harmonized fashion, ideally to be interoperable. But that's only one of the features that we have to accomplish. So I think it may be very important for pathology to, you know, open their arms and and adopt a lot more different and diverse job groups and you know really speak up about what pathology truly is and what what's needed to make this happen i think just to you know to to create the incentive from within even with it fellowships and even with people who who love this domain i don't think we can we can handle this alone is what i'm trying to make yeah and just to that point too i was going to make the point that and i'm going to put on my um Association of Pathology hat, informatics hat, because of, um, you know, my current position. But, you know, API has made a statement, which actually advocated for the interoperability and really touting it. And it's gotten the endorsement from ASCP and among other organizations as well. So the community is building. I think there is a lot of momentum for this. I think we're still figuring things out. But, you know, I think everybody's recognizing it, which is the first stage of things. Orly, any closing thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I just want to mention that the more adoption of uh, digital pathology there is, the more demand for uh, purchases of scanners. We see newer models out there. I think it will make the financial sense for the vendors to to improve their 
offering to really work with our pathologists because they need the pathologist in order to sell their product. So it's it's something that will just have to come from them. But without a financial incentive for them, it's just not going to happen. Okay, so I think we're down to our final question. So here it goes. So for our panel, in your own practice and in practices that you have directly observed, what are some of the lessons learned around the adoption of digital of a digital pathology platform for clinical or other use? And let's start with Matt. So you know, over the Memorial Sloan Kettering has had a has had a very rich experience in terms of digital pathology, you know, over the last decade and, and, and more actually. But in terms of lessons learned, like everything, communication is key, making sure that all of the stakeholders across the organization have uh, appropriate oversight. And even especially in the lab where we've actually had histotechnologists be trained in terms of inclu- being included in, in the digital pathology operation, but by allowing them or by having them integrated into the digital pathology workflow, we need to have very strong communication between the digital scanning team as well as the laboratory members. And the other lessons learned that I want to mention is really that there's some thoughts that just because the for older generations of pathologists that they are the ones who are more skeptical in terms of using the digital pathology. We actually have very experienced and seasoned pathologists who are very technologically savvy and are, are very much, you know, nipping at the opportunity to use digital pathology, whether it's work-life balance or being able to use digital slides for research and otherwise. But especially from a clinical perspective, it's really not necessarily due to age, but it's more due to a comfortability or familiarity with using technology and how that may actually benefit them from a, from a clinical perspective. Orly, Joe? I would say um, let's just start slow. If you don't have infrastructure in place, don't try to move from uh, analog to digital overnight. Uh, those scanners, those platforms are not plug and play. It's not a thermal cycler that you plug in and you set up. And you do need more infrastructure than just the <laughs> you do need more infrastructure than just the scanners. You know, we we're talking about scanners as if that's all you need. You need some IT resources, you need space, you need quite a lot of things to happen. And I would say that the most important thing is to engage the vendors, let them help you. Some of them are more willing to help than others, but they are really what we need to to move forward. And also, one of the more important things is to identify champions in the department. There is no way you can get all pathologists on board. It's just not going to happen overnight. But if you start small with a small number of pathologists who are interested, that's how you, I think you can drive, just like with any other change management, this is what's going to help you move forward. I can totally second that. I think change management is key. Maybe the two practical approaches, especially for certain settings, right? Clearly, academic medical centers are driven by innovation. I think that is by default already easier. But what if you're not in an academic medical center, right? So at some point, there has to be a group that is actually able to innovate. And very frequently, that is the molecular pathologist. They are very experienced with integrating highly complex machinery into complex workflows. So if you have a molecular pathologist, maybe they're working on, you know, multiplex panels or next-gen sequencing, they're familiar with how to integrate that. And as I'm saying that, right, the disability to have people be able to integrate new technologies is something that I believe puts a big task on all the educational programs and specific on on the AP side. Classically, bringing on new tests and validating those are not necessarily a core competency of an AP-only pathologist. But digital pathology now requires AP pathologists to know how to verify and validate truly novel indications of use and intended use cases for AP. I think that's a huge gap that we have to somehow fill. So if you are locally you know, in a setting where you don't have, you know, let's say an IT team or, you know, your informatics division that can just whip up, you know, a $250,000 operation, maybe a good idea to talk to your molecular pathologist and talk to the CP side and say, how do you guys validate tests here? 
you know, that may be sort of a, a start in the right direction as sort of a concrete or practical tip. And I, w- I would just add that, you know, recently, I believe Matthew kind of hinted at this, but recently uh, CAP and ASDP, along with others, com- redid the guideline for validation um, for whole slide imaging. And I think I was I was part of that committee. I was very excited to be part of it. Uh, and I think one of the things that I learned from it was that this is a crucial part, right? We thought about all those different aspects that you're referring to through this podcast today about the pre-analytical and how you involve all of that and how do you make sure the pathologists are actually reading the slides correctly? Is that even part of, you know, part of a validation step or not? So I do think that there are, it is a lot of moving parts. Um, I appreciate the comments about the cost considerations and the use cases. And I think this is all the sort of stuff that we want our our audience out there to understand and to, to ask questions about. So I really, really thank all of you so much today for your comments and for participating. I think this has been super, I hope you've learned something. I've learned a ton. And I do want to remind you for people to tell their colleagues about the podcast um, and a reminder to subscribe through their favorite podcast aggregator so they don't miss any future podcasts. Um, I'd like to thank my co-host, my guest co-host today, Dr. Saren Tropin, for stepping in uh, to join us. And also don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store on our website or going to www.ascp.org.